0: All right, let's get started, shall we? Well, John's out at a conference today and next week too. He's—I'm going to pick up where he left off with uh, the life of King David. You know, as—and by the way, we put this QR code up here. And if you click on, if you screenshot that, for those of you who came in, then you go four down there, and you can see this heart of the king's booklet. And that'll show you the PDF, so you can pick that up. As we think about the life of a man like King David. Some of my most significant memories as a Christian, some of my most precious and privileged memories of a Christian have to do with the opportunities I've had to live in contexts where you witness serious worldview change, where you see people's lives transformed by the power of the gospel. I think of a man that has been near and dear to me for a lot of years, whose name is Keiko. And Kaiko was um, a brother in Christ. He's a pastor colleague for many years now. But when he was a child, he uh, left his remote village, went to attend a boarding school where he was going to be educated um, and learn, in effect, to get out of that village kind of identity. Uh, he, so he had been in a, an elementary school for a number of years. And as he was preparing to leave, he had to take an entrance exam at eighth grade to be able to go on. And he, he contracted typhoid. And so in the process of getting typhoid, he thought he was actually going to die. They took him back to his village, and he never got to continue through the process of being educated and advancing outside of that village bubble, if you will. And so he wondered at that time what the Lord was going to do with his life. And you fast forward that a number of years. uh, He's an adult now. He's um, uh, receiving missionaries into his community so a missionary family comes to work with him and they ask him Kaiko, to help them to learn his own language and uh he begins to hear the message of the gospel of the lord jesus christ he's converted he comes to faith because he has access to god's word in his own language and he becomes a pastor in the churches he begins to help those um around him and especially the missionary team work on creating a written Bible translation to to provide additional scripture in his language he he has two children both of whom he's now able to raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord and so he never did that which his cousins uh, did and um, achieved success as it were in in getting outside of the village life and yet what I saw in him as he grew was that stable, humble, quiet integrity of life. A man like like Nathaniel, in whom there was no deceit. A man who learned to love people well and minister well to others around him. Kaiko and his wife, Palava, were the ones who were involved in teaching us the Ata language and culture. And so he was alongside, spent hundreds if not thousands of hours doing these kinds of activities with us, with Jesse and Ian sometimes sitting in the background just observing life in the community together where we're just living life alongside them. We had the privilege of building a church together and a house together and a school together. We had the privilege of teaching children to read and write in their own communities together. We had the privilege of worshiping together around the Word of God. They loved our kids well, so Liam was born when we were there, and they loved him well. Talia was born when we were there, and they loved her so well, carried her everywhere. Uh, Jesse was taught what a fruit bat was by Keiko in the community there. Ian was taught to eat grub worms in the community there, believe it or not. And just the privilege and joy we had to work together as we taught and as we traveled, as we um, shared God's word in his life with others, uh, just just the, the remarkable privilege of what the Word of God can do to provide a kind of integrity of life for us that we shouldn't take for granted. You know, as, as we were developing curriculum to teach the churches and uh, had the privilege of just having a whole slew of written resources that mirrored one, or, one after another of the books of the Word of God and made those available for people in those communities as we were able to appoint leaders. Um, to to be responsible for the churches as we were able to work together with pastors um, who were interested in in furthering their skills to be equipped in ministry um, i i remember one poignant memory i had before we left the community in 2012 there we we bought this panasonic tough book and and none of the people in the community knew how to type And um, we were there in the community, and Kaiko, as a leader, was determined to be the example of people learning to type. So this is a man almost, he's in his 40s, mid-40s, and I would hear him down there every night under the, we had to set up a solar electric system, we didn't have um, regular city power, it was no such thing, (laughs) we were out of ways. And he was down there every night at 1 and 2 in the morning using typing instructor in English, to learn how to type so that he could be more effective to teach God's word to others. And that, that, that was a remarkable testimony of faith and faithfulness for me. Um, I think of the words of Jesus that he says, faithful with little, faithful with much. He says, no person can serve two masters. He says, the same spring cannot produce both bitter and sweet water. The Proverbs says, guard your heart. For it is a wellspring of your life, and I can tell you, you, a man that you wouldn't have known, as we got prepared to leave the community, there in in the in the village context, and they they brought they they brought the whole community out to the airport to to see to see us leave. And what was what's humbling to me is that when you're sitting in that context and you're seeing that kind of integrity lived out, what you realize is that God has done a kind of remarkable, life-changing work that you didn't actually have much to do with. That God, in fact, has done a kind of work that His Word can do that provides a kind of integrity for life that is what we should all be aspiring to. And so, you know, it's a quiet life, it's a life you wouldn't know about, but it's nonetheless a life that is a model of integrity, a life that guards against duplicity. And so that's the warning and exhortation that I feel this morning as I think about the examples of those kinds of lives. I, you know, I think about it in the terms of the integrity of anonymity. In other words, what's integrity mean for us when we are anonymous? What's integrity mean when we're living lives that no one else knows about? that have no platforms. that have no special places to stand and be recognized. What does that mean for us? And so I, I want to challenge us with this this morning, and I, I don't want you to be put off by changes I'm making to the verbiage in your, worship, in your guide, worship guide, that would be... I'm not changing that. But in your uh, study notes guide, I don't want you to be put off by that. I'm just adjusting a few of the, of the headers there. And in the short form of our main point this morning, I just want to issue this challenge to us to beware duplicity and to treasure integrity. That's the, that's the short version of what I want to communicate as... You see that in your outline. And so let me ask you a few introductory questions so we, we get started this morning. And, and I feel this challenge daily for my own life. And, and we see it reflected in the life of David. What are the duplicities, or the ambivalences, or the dual um, services? In other words, what two masters do you frequently serve and tolerate in your heart before the Lord? Are you a person who's actually, and I ask myself the same question, am I a person who's pleading with the Lord like David did or like my friend Kaiko often did to expose those duplicities of heart for me and to make the meditation of my heart actually pure? Am I really seeking the Lord in purifying the meditation of my heart? Am I truly treasuring integrity above all else? such that I see myself living a life that's well-lived before the face of God. That, that's my goal. I, I, am I satisfied with the integrity that comes from anonymity? So if I never get a platform, never speak at a big conference, you know, just talk to a few people here and there, don't write a big book that's super important, Like, am, is that okay? And I, I know that may not be all your frame of reference, but certainly the tension or... Tr- the tendencies are the same for you as they are for me. And so as we look at the example of David this week and the next week, we're we're asking ourselves, what ingredients contribute to a man or woman who pursues the heart of God? In other words, who is seeking to live with integrity? What are the ingredients for that? In other words, how do we ourselves beware of that kind of duplicity and treasure integrity with God? So that's our challenge this morning. And I'm going to start Back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. So we can get our bearings quickly. If you want to look there briefly, just to get our bearings again where we are here. The the, the story of David doesn't really pick up until chapter 16. But I'd like for us to get our bearings in chapter 13. Because you remember that when David is called a man after God's own heart, David himself is still anonymous. God is aware of a man after his own heart. And yet no one else is aware of that man. And God, in fact, through Samuel, speaks to King Saul in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And those verses say, And Samuel said to Saul, remember, Saul had failed to do that which God had told him to do, and eliminate the spoils of the Amalekites. And so Samuel says to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, that anonymous man who was shepherding sheep. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now that's a strong and sobering warning to Saul. You have not obeyed. You have acted foolishly. The kingdom will not continue. And yet a really high praise for the anonymous David, this one who God had seen from afar, if you will, and had seen that he was characterized as a man after God's own heart. And so we see that contrast all throughout, like John mentioned last week. Remember, King Saul fears man most of the time. And what we'll see from David is that he fears God most of the time. King Saul sought his own kingdom sought to establish himself, and David seeks God's kingdom and seeks God's establishment of him and of his his dynasty, if you will. King Saul concerned himself with his own personal glory, and David was concerned with God's glory. Now, to be a man or, or woman after God's own heart, that means then that we want to be people who Would stand before the Lord and God would look at us or in our lives even now that we would be able to assess ourselves in light of the scriptures and say we are people after God's heart. We're people who treasure integrity and who are bewaring of the duplicity of serving two masters. And so I pray that that's the case. I pray that's our desire. I pray that our priority would be to hear God declare us men and women after his own heart. That we would be pursuing a kind of joyful integrity in the presence of our master, Lord Jesus Christ. The way of integrity and not that duplicity that often characterizes us. That's hidden in the recesses of who we are. That's not necessarily seen in the surface, but it's hidden in what we understand and should come to understand about the dangers of our own hearts. You know, we taught this just now, just this last couple of weeks in BTI and taught the life of David. And I must admit that, that sharing this topic is, leaves me conflicted because when we read the narratives of the life of David, there are lots of ways I don't really like David very much, just to be honest with you. Like a lot of what's recorded in the Bible about what David does is not positive. And it's one of the ways we know the Bible's inspired, right? Because there's no glamorization of the characters of the Bible. There are human beings who are sinful, but what God challenges me with in the account of David and in this just kind of a description of a man after God's heart is not what David does but who God sees him in terms of who he is before the Lord and that makes a big difference now I'm not trying to dichotomize by any means but I am saying that God works from who we are to what we do and oftentimes we just see surface level issues and try to operate externally I mean David's a man who murdered and committed adultery and who had wayward children and had multiple wives, none of which we would aspire after, right? I hope you're not aspiring after those. But what we see is this man who lived his life before the face of God. And therefore, next week when we talk about David's repentance, we understand that he was also a man who was sobered regularly by the influences, the effects of sin in his life. But today, particularly focusing on this idea that he's pursuing a kind of integrity before the Lord that was his priority. And so to be clear, thankfully, we don't trust in David for our salvation, right? He's in the line of Christ, but he's not Christ. We trust in the one, and just imagine with me what it's like to live a life fully in, with full integrity before the Lord. That's what Christ did, and before God the Father. And so um, as we think about integrity and repentance next week, uh, we'll be pointing back to these foundations of faith, the integrity of faith that we're building here um, this morning. And so just remember with me that what we're pointing toward is this bewaring of duplicity and treasuring integrity. And we want to see that in the life of David, even if it's imperfect. So let's highlight a few principles that we, we pull out of the text here. And we're going we're gonna to jump over to First Samuel chapter 16 to start tracking with the life of David there. And remember, I'm going to follow this outline. So, Roman number one is Roman number one, but I'm just reframing that as God pursues your heart, okay? God pursues your heart. Because in order to cultivate integrity in us, first, God pursues your and my heart. The gospel is all about heart change. The gospel is all about hearts of stone being made hearts of flesh. The gospel is all about Old wineskins being made into new wineskins, like we'll hear in the sign this morning. Now, in the way I grew up, that's a foreign concept. You may say, wow, well, I thought you grew up on the mission field. Well, I did, but I also grew up in an environment that was very behaviorally oriented and moralistic. And in fact, um, emotions or descriptions of the affections of the heart, where the heart stands before God, weren't very much talked about. In fact, they were kind of viewed with suspicion. Um, and so when, when we are talking about heart before the Lord, we are indeed including the whole person. We're talking about what compels us to function the way that we do. What compels us to act the way that we do. What are our intentions? What are our motivations? Unless you and I are deceived, and let's not be, we're talking about integrity. An integrity that unifies a whole person. Because God cares about our affections for him. When God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, when Jesus even added to that, he's talking about whole person devoted to, oriented toward God as our Father and Christ as our Savior with the Holy Spirit at work in us. So God is at work to do that which changes our affections. What I I define affections as the abiding assurances of our souls. The abiding assurances of our souls. What is the abiding assurance that keeps your soul grounded. That what, is, what is it that unifies your life? What is it that integrates your life? What is it that settles your life? What, what composes you? What assures you? What organizes you? Those are the kinds of descriptions that we talk about and think about when we talk about the heart of a person. The center of being. And that's the way the Hebrews would have considered that concept. And so when God says, I found a man after my own heart, we should t- say, wow, that's, that's an amazing statement from the Lord. And so let's look at a few of the ways that God pursues that integrity of heart with and for us. Because if God doesn't first pursue us, we're not pursuing him. You know this, right? Like, praise God he pursued you, that you're here today, this, and God has pursued you or, and is pursuing you. Because if he doesn't do that, then we're not pursuing him. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to find a man, uh, and God has already described after his own heart. And in verse 1 there in chapter 16, uh, the Lord says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, we could sit here and talk for a few minutes about what it was about the situation that made Samuel hesitant to let Saul go. We could, we could talk about that. We could find applications in our own lives of ways in which we aren't willing to turn our face toward the next decision because we're regretful and, of the fact that the last decision we made didn't turn out the way we wanted it to, and so we need to keep holding on to it and try to somehow make it right. But we, we don't have time for that today. But the fact is that Samuel himself was still kind of mired down in a kind of regretting regretting what had happened. Somehow either God hadn't done what he needed to do or Samuel felt like he hadn't done what he needed to do. And so God compels him, though, to go in search of his chosen king. And so when he arrives in Bethlehem, Samuel asks Jesse to bring all the sons before him. And you know the story here. I'm not going to belabor all the details. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 and 7... They start to come to him, all seven of them, and they look on one after another after another, and, and look at that statement in verse six. Samuel looks at Eliab, the oldest, the eldest, and says, "Surely the Lord's anointed is before him." In other words, surely the Lord's anointed is standing before the Lord. Surely God sees Him. And sure, In other words, surely this is the man God would choose. And the Lord says to Samuel, don't look on his appearance, don't look on his stature, because I have rejected him, he says in verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so let's draw out a few implications of that as we think forward. Um, What does it mean that the Lord looks on the heart, not the outward appearance? Well, first of all, I would say it this way, and this is my re- reframing of your point A. There, God pursues your heart in order to integrate your whole person, because to Saul, despite all that Samuel had learned about Saul, he was Saul was very physical, but he was faithless, and Samuel is still conflicted about how to negotiate and reconcile appearance and faithfulness to the Lord. How to negotiate and reconcile physic, physical, the physical with the, with the spiritual, if you will. And Scripture is clear that God does not, in, does not evaluate people according to mere physical measures. And yet, we as human beings, that's our tendency. Just take a small look at the Super Bowl as an event. Okay? A small look. You got a billionaire who's flying in on her her private jet and she's all the talk of the of the whole situation. You got a football player who's managed to align himself with her and so create this sort of public image that's all about self-promotion. And you got an event that's just massively organized around money and wealth and status. Did, did, is there anybody there who's talking about someone other than the who's who of what we consider to be this world, right? Now, listen, I'll watch the Super Bowl too. okay? I won't watch the halftime show, but I'll watch the Super Bowl too, and I'm just, But I'm just telling you, don't be surprised. It's, it's a big outward event that is all about the glorification of man. It really is. And that's not the way God functions. Like, God is about the anonymity of integrity before him. Now, that should sober us significantly because God does not care about how we posture and maneuver and promote ourselves in the face of others. I don't think this is just about when, when Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 and 3, talk about Jesus not having a form of majesty that we should desire him, no beauty to desire him, that he was despised and rejected, that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, uh, as one for men whom men hide their faces, despised and we esteemed him not. When, G, when Isaiah gives that description of Jesus, he's not just saying Jesus was not good-looking. That's not the point as far as I'm concerned. The fact is, is that the kind of self-sacrificing humility that Christ took on in form is not the kind of self-sacrificing humility that appeals to the world. I don't care whether Jesus was you know, one of the top ten best-looking men in Israel or not. The fact is the way he lived indicated a kind of, a kind of godliness, a kind of integrity that doesn't attract people to him. He didn't have his world makeup on. He had his God sacrificing before his father face on. He was a man who learned the anonymity that is required for integrity. And so that's the challenge I feel, is that when God the, father took, God the Son took on flesh, his form was very average in the eyes of the world because he didn't do that which the world wanted him to do. And yet Jesus was the one that the Father said of, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so God wants that kind of devotion from us. He wants our whole beings as living sacrifices. So it's not just about one or the other. It's not about the physical or the spiritual. It's about the integrity that God wants to build in us pursuing after him with a whole heart. And so God pursues your heart in order to integrate your whole person. He wants the whole of your being devoted to him. But we have to beware... We've, I think this is clear enough, and this is my reframing of there, your be there. Beware, because we sinfully do the opposite. Your proclivity, your inclination, your tendency will be to do the opposite. We are syncretizers, okay? So in cross-cultural terms, we, we amalgamate the conveniences of one or the other religious systems. We, we mix them all together at our own convenience. We syncretize and try to live lives that are not in, characterized by integrity. We, we actually can live an outward life that projects a kind of devotion to the Lord. And then inwardly, we know that there are areas of heart and life where we're not actually devoted to the Lord, that our abiding assurances of soul, our affections are not for the Lord. And so we have to beware because we have the, in, the intention and, the, and make decisions regularly to do the opposite. And we, we see this come out in a whole host of ways in our lives. For example, for parents, and I'm guilty of this too, what is it that I'm promoting as, as important in the development of the lives of my own children? What am I, what am I teaching? What am I training toward? What am I guiding in? It, is it really the case that I pray most desperately for God to, to cultivate, to create an affection of heart, of of those of my children of those I'm shepherding, such that really, what's the priority for them? And they would be able to tell you. If I interviewed, if you interviewed one of my kids, and and you asked them the simple question, "What does your dad care the most about in your life?" I hope, I hope the answer is he cares about my integrity before the Lord. I hope, and so I I pray that that's the case. That we're we're training our young people to, to care more about their integrity than their athletic prowess, for my daughter to care more about her integrity than her academics, which is a danger for her and for me. And for us as people then, and, and you who are not married maybe, that, that you're thinking forward towards a spouse and thinking about your own prep preparedness for a spouse in light of your integrity before the Lord, Now, I'm not dumb enough, listen, I'm not not dumb enough to think that there is not a reality of attractiveness physically that matters to us as human beings, okay? I'm not dumb enough to think that, but is that framed with reference to integrity before the Lord? So are we framing the, 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 the importance and balancing the importance of those issues rightly before the Lord? Because the Bible does say... Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But the, a woman, or, and I, you could say a man, who fear, fears the Lord should actually be the one who's praised. Is that what we're pursuing? We, we could make lots of applications like that for ourselves, friends, but you get the point. Our tendency is to sinfully do the opposite. And so, you know, for whatever reason, in this account here, in verse 10... When Jesse makes, all in chapter 16, 10 there, when Jesse makes seven of the sons pass before the Lord, I love the fact that David is not included. Because God has to go find him. He has to go find a man of integrity and bring him before Samuel. His parents don't even know where he stands. He's a man who served anonymously among the sheep. And let me just soapbox for one second here. The problem with a lot of what happens in our lives is that our lives in this environment are configured for promotion. So one of the dangers of social media is that young people who don't have a disposition to have integrity before the Lord are, are, are promoting an outward appearance and a set of posturing, a way of posturing towards society that there's no substance for in foundation building. So their lives can't sustain that. They haven't learned faithful anonymity before the face of God. No, they're learning to live in the fear of man. And a lot of our Western lives are built in that direction. They're teaching people to fear man and not to fear the Lord. And so I just challenge you to realize that when 1 Corinthians 1, when when Paul says, God chooses what's foolish in the world to shame the wise, he chooses what's weak in the world to shame the strong, he chooses what's lowly in the world and what's despised to bring to nothing that which is. He's talking about worldviews. He's talking about systems of living. He's talking about a contrast between duplicity and, and fear of man and, and engagement with a world system on the one hand and integrity and a lack of duplicity and a faithfulness quorum Deo before the face of God on the other. And it, that's, there, it's a massive chasm between the two. And so that should, though, encourage us because here's the deal. God levels the playing field of human existence. Here's what I mean by that. It doesn't matter whether you have more aptitude. It doesn't matter whether you're more skilled. It doesn't matter whether you have the physiology, like one of one commentator says, athletics is about, phys- it's about physicality. You're not 6'5 or 6'7 and 250 or 270 pounds. Okay? It doesn't matter. Because in the eyes of the Lord, what matters is that we're all on the level playing field of an accountability before his face. And that's it. So we all have the same level of privilege to have the opportunity to engage with a life of integrity before God. We all have it. And so God levels the playing field of existence. You think he needs one of us to be, have more ability and talent than another? Like, it's God sitting up there thinking, man, if I'd only created more talented people at UBC... Everything would work right, or I only did. The, no, God doesn't need that. God desires that we faithfully pursue integrity before Him. That's what He wants from us, and so that should encourage us and challenge us. It does me. And so then, as we proceed in this pact, this passage, God is interested in integrating our whole person. We sinfully do the opposite, and and God's going to therefore take a lifetime to teach us integrity. He's going to take a lifetime. Did you realize that's one of the chief outcomes in God's economy of your life? Is that he gives you the lifetime that you have to build integrity in you before him. That that's, a, that's a, a, an important activity that is called sanctification in the New Testament. And we see that even in the life of David. We see it in the life of others in the Old, in the old Testament too, like Moses and Abraham and, and Abraham's sons. We, we could just give example after example of how The process took a lot longer than they expected it to, and it's taken a lot longer than I expected it to in my life, and you probably feel the same way, because Samuel says, send David down here in verse 12 and 13 there in chapter 16, and they bring David before them, and it it says he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome, so that's part of my point is not to say it's all about David's appearance as such. That's not what God means when he says, primarily what he means when he says he doesn't look on outward appearance. Because the Lord said to Samuel there in verse 12, arise and anoint him for this is he. And so Samuel takes the horn and anoints him in the midst of his brothers. And then we see the spirit of the Lord rush on David from that day forward, it says. And so what we would expect is the inauguration of a new kingdom. Because the the king's been anointed. Like, next step, tomorrow, the throne's here, we're going to, you know, we got to do some remodeling to the throne room, but we're going to put David in the throne room, and he can start to organize his cabinet, and away we can go, right? But that's not what happens. You realize that it's going to be 17 more years after this point, before David becomes king, and in the meantime of all that, he's going to be betrayed, pursued, harassed by Saul for almost 10 years. As, he, as he's running in the, de- the wilderness, the desert, you think David didn't sometimes wonder, wait, was I, call me crazy, but I think there was this one time when Samuel came and poured some oil on my head, and I became king. Like, when did that happen again? I'm starting to lose my mind, right? But the Lord does that kind of work in us, and the Lord did that kind of work in David. Just think with me about the preparedness it takes for David to be able to learn to repent of sin and turn to God. Like, how long does that take? It takes a long time, obviously, because the Lord took 17 years to get him to a place where he felt like he should assume the throne. And we're those kinds of people, and the Lord does that with us. He offers us, and I know you don't think of it this way, because I don't always either, but he offers us a privilege of a lifetime to be sanctified. Now, do do you think of your life in those kinds of terms? That Christ forgiving our sins and taking them on himself in the gospel— gives us the privilege of a lifetime of being transformed into the image of Christ. That we're those who've died, Paul would say in Romans 7, and died to the law and through the body of Christ so that we can belong to him who has been raised from the dead. And so we are sitting here this morning, which means we have God has some segments of your physical being, right? I mean, I don't know where your mind is right now. But I, can't, I can see you, so you're here. But does he, does he possess more of your heart today? Are your affections for him greater today than they were yesterday? Is, is it the case that when you sing with the congregation later this morning that, that you're singing differently today than you did last week or last month? Is it the case that God has done what David himself wrote in Psalm 43, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Is that really the outcome? Is that really what you're seeing as the time God's using to transform you into the person of integrity that He desires for you to be, the man or the woman after His heart? And David was that kind of man. He was, as we'll see next week, he was one who would regularly pray, like in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David would be a person whose, whose priority was in that kind of direction before the Lord. So you, I think you're now at least willing to consider thinking, That God really does want your heart. That God is in fact pursuing your heart. That he wants your heart submitted to him. That the the battles, the struggles, and even the victories of your life, just like in the life of David, are intended over time to change you. To transform you into that which God would want a person who lives before his face in integrity. Which takes us to your Roman numeral 2 there. That if God is in the business of pursuing your heart, then we should pursue God's heart, right? And these are ordered this way on purpose because as I already said, the main principle is God pursues us in order that we might pursue him. God is seeking us out as well. And there are so many examples we could use um, in the scriptures, uh, how how many different examples we could draw out um, from the life of David, but I'm going to frame the conversation in this way, as us pursuing the glory of God. Okay, that the way that we pursue the heart of God is to pursue the glory of God. Um, and I'm gonna. So this is how I'm gonna recast that that next set of points there. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna describe us pursuing His person, His presence, and His purposes. Because a word like glory, you know, we talk about this in B.T.I. It comes up pretty early in the Bible, like. We say glory to God, like I want to glorify God. Um, God is going to show us his glory. Jesus revealed the glory of God. And we're all looking at each other like, okay, great. You know, I don't actually know what that means. Um, is that like a bright, shining light? Is that like, what is that exactly? So let me just define glory concretely for you as the revealed person, presence, and purposes of God. So, glory is the revealed person, presence, and purposes of God. And in heaven, when we stand in glory, we will be standing in the fully revealed person, presence, and purposes of God. So that helps me because some of these words are so much less than concrete, and it makes, makes the application for me more practical. And so if we're thinking about pursuing the person of God, we see that in the life of David in 1 Samuel chapter 17, that famous story of David and Goliath. That Again, I won't take the time to reread because you know it, but what, it's, what, what the author says there in chapter 17 and that is that every man of Israel was dismayed and afraid. And David looks at Goliath and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David is not shocked he doesn't seem to be shocked by the fact that Goliath is nine foot nine you know that is pretty shocking I mean none of you are it doesn't seem like it when I look out there and I'm not either so it would be a bit shocking but that doesn't seem to be what David's concerned about everybody else sees the outward formidable reality of Goliath and no one can get past that so they're thinking about their own safety I don't want to go try to throw a spear at that guy he's going to kill me you know and David is concerned about the reputation of God. He's concerned about the person of God. So the, 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 the soldiers are thinking things probably like, like I'm going to go out there and get killed. And if he kills me, I'll look like a fool and I'll be dead. Right? And that's a problem. That's not what they were looking. But David is saying, Goliath is proudly and defiantly challenging the name of God. And so David goes to fight Goliath because he's carried about the person and reputation of God. He doesn't even take up Saul's armor. He, he refuses that. He says, in fact, that Goliath will come at him with a sword and a javelin, but he goes to Goliath in the name of God. In other words, he's claiming the person of God as his defense, the God of Israel, he says. And so I'll just challenge you quickly. That, that's, that's convicting for me. Like, do I, do I actually see that when I live a life in the world that lacks integrity, That I'm blaspheming the name of God. That I'm um, living a life that contradicts the person of God. And therefore, I'm not glorifying God, right? That I'm actually mocking the reputation of God, in effect. And so, are we most concerned about, is one of our priorities today to defend the person of God? In other words, to live lives that demonstrate the character of God. That's a, a principle of the integrity that David lived here. And then secondly, we should pursue the presence of God. We see that many, many, many times in Psalms from David. We could look at Psalm 27, where he says, only one thing have I asked to be in the presence of the Lord. Um, He says in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. In Psalm 63, uh, I, I just long to dwell in your presence. I'm just asking us, like, is our safest place to live and to exist uh, in the presence of God? Is that really the case? In fact, does that mean that our fellowship with God in Christ is actually our priority? That when we face times when we are betraying the integrity that God wants for us, and we lose fellowship with God because of sin, that we're earnest to restore that fellowship. That others around us would say, I don't know that much about where that person lives, how nice their house is, or how much money they have. But I sure know their desires to fellowship with God in Christ. Is your soul and is my soul perpetually dissatisfied. And disenchanted and discontent. I, I, you know there's a malaise. We can't talk much about this. But there's this malaise in our western environment of discontentment. And I, I think a lot of it does actually have to do with what we are pursuing. We're pursuing a kind of status building that that measures us up or boosts us in the eyes of people around us and I'll just tell you that the real solution that I'm finding for my own soul is to be enchanted by an opportunity to fellowship with Christ and God that that would be the delight of my heart that that the goals that I set for my day would be, would be orienting me around what does it mean for me to learn today more to delight in my fellowship with God in Christ. And that, that's, a, that's a huge challenge for me. And then thirdly, in, in light of this idea of pursuing the glory of God, we, we pursue the purposes of God. In other words, we regularly refuse to exchange the glory of God for the glory of an idol. Now, you, you've heard the conversation enough. You know that when we talk about idolatry in the Old Testament as, as the, the, one of the Ten Commandments, we're, we're not just, and Jesus makes this clear, we're not just talking about an outward image we set up and worship. We're talking about the danger of idolatry as that which divides us, which, which, which creates duplicities of loyalties in us, which makes us less than fully inclined to to worship God only. I don't think it was just because God is a being whose spirit and not an image that God said, don't make images, because he was concerned that people would make images that would be substitute, they would be alternatives for the worship of him alone. And he didn't want people to be tempted by that. And so David is one who is known in the Old Testament as one who pursued the heart of God and put away idolatry from before his eyes. In other words. He was pursuing the purposes of God to make, himself known, to make God known and not to make himself known. And so that's why David says, I'm not going to set a worthless thing before my eyes, like Psalm 101. And, and when, you, when you hear the account of Solomon, David's son, when he was old and his, he, his heart was turned away, it says that he was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Or that's that kind of thing is said about Asa as he set up idols that his he was not truly devoted as was the heart of David, his father. And so, just diagnostically again, do we seek the integrity of worshiping God alone? Is that really a priority for me? Am I am I desiring to allow the Lord's in Christ, his word, to expose? that which I idolize, that which I pursue, that is actually a false kind of worship. It, it brings me back to what I said in the first place. I'm just telling you, like in missionary life, if, as an example, okay, like I have friends, and they are friends, but, you know, on day one in the community they're going to minister into, the camera's on, right? Like, because what they're thinking is 10 years from now, maybe 12 you know, I got a video I need to make and a book I need to write and a story I need to tell. And that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, again, to return to what I'm describing, that idolatry is rooted out of our hearts in the anonymity of our lives lived before the Lord. Now, I'm not saying it's a solo sport, okay? So don't misunderstand me. We help one another in the process of that. But what I am saying is there's a, there's a serious before the Lord position that helps him to show me how to how to identify that which is conflicting the interests and affections of my heart and that's that's again i've said it too many times already it's a huge challenge for us as human beings because so much of our life, lives is lived in a way in which from the appearance of things we are we're completely fine there's nothing to worry about and yet in the eyes of god that's not the case and and so as we pursue the glory of God, as we pursue God's heart for us, his person, his presence, and his purposes, we're learning to abide in faith. We're learning to abide in the assurance of salvation. We see that all through the life of David, especially in chapter 17, as he um, says that you know, it's the Lord who delivers him from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear. Hey, let me just tell you. Like I've been out by myself in places where, if I got killed, there would be no one who would know where I was. And so the decision I'm making out there, when you know I got some people who are pretty frustrated with me out in the middle of nowhere in the Amazon basin, um, and for me to get killed is like there. That's it. Like you're depend, You're you're in a position. Which is a metaphor, the idea metaphorically, what I'm describing is that's how we live before the Lord. We live and die because the Lord gives us strength to be changed, to be those who seek out the assurance of his salvation, like David did. There was no one who who was checking up on David in the many instances where he faces the lion or the bear. There's no way that people could have checked up on him in all the ways God was at work in him over those many years of being pursued and afflicted and acting like a madman with the Philistines. All kinds of places where he was, where God knew where he was, and therefore God had to be his salvation. And that's us too, that God brought him through those circumstances. God gave him victory. God helped him to win victories, to have... um, a growing resolve and fortitude that God was the one at work to cause him to abide in the assurance of God as his salvation. And so that's why David says in Psalm 27, he says, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, so God, you have said to me, seek my face. And my heart says to you, God, your face do I seek. That's David not writing. I know he wrote for us, but he wrote for himself. He wrote to to reflect on, to to catalog the the posture of his own heart in seeking the face of the Lord. And he knew, he says later, he says, God, you are the God of my salvation in that same psalm. And so just as a a reminder and uh, a mention here that David was the one who There's a way in which these Old Testament prophets, and David spoke prophetically many times, they were looking through the annals of time at the dim figure of the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew there was a Messiah coming. They couldn't quite make him out, the scriptures say, but they knew he was there. And there are so many times when God prophetically uses the voice of David to point that out for us. Like in Psalm 16, where David cries out to God, you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption, that would be prophetically fulfilled in Christ. In other words, Christ himself depended on God the Father for his salvation, for his resurrection. That Paul would say later, quoting that psalm, that Jesus was the one that God raised from the dead, that he saved, that Jesus, in effect, abided. He was abiding in the assurance of God's salvation for him too. So David was only looking forward to a greater example who would come. And so just to to, uh, summarize for you as we turn to a few questions here, God is not interested in us having these religious scores that we're keeping in relationship to one another. What's my score? What's your score? How many points have you earned? How many points have I earned? God places his steadfast love on us through Christ. He pursues our hearts in Christ so that we can pursue the heart of God in Christ, so that we can be those who are truly seeking to glorify God, or those who are truly desiring the presence, the person, and the purposes of God for us, that our hearts are being conformed, transformed to be whole in that way, and that that would affect the ways that we live, the priorities that we have, the, the, the words that we speak, uh, the actions that we take, the futures that we carry forward, the people that we marry, that those would be the ways in which that all of that heart posture before the Lord gets manifest. So I just want to give you a closing illustration Um, That I think of often. So you remember my friend Kaiko? He's he's one of those who would play the drum in our services. So our our worship services often didn't sound like what you would think because there's this there's this drum the to have. It's made out of one big hardwood hollow log, and when they hit that drum, so that stick there is a it's a stick they hold up right and it's about seven five five to seven feet long, and they strike the middle of that drum. And as they're striking it, they let the stick go. Bam, bam. And you can hear that drum resonate throughout the valley. Uh, it's, it's unmistakable. It's a pure and clear sound, and everybody who hears it knows what it is. And I think of Keiko's life that way. I think of, I pray that our lives will be that way, that the resonating sound of your life is an integrity before the Lord that is unmistakable. And that people who hear and see that, in me and in you, would be... Challenged that that's a life worth living. This life I have over here it ain't worth it because it's lacking something. And so, is that the consistency of your life? Is that the consistency of my life? Do we do we live in a sincerity of God pursuing our hearts and us pursuing His? Is that the joy of our lifetime that He's doing that? You know, I'm old enough now to have to be thinking that a lot of what I would consider to be my greatest privileges are in the rearview mirror. It feels that way sometimes. But the fact is, is that my great privilege is to stand at this point in time and to be looking forward to God's continued work to build integrity in me and make me a person who resonates in this world um, with a heart, a delight like that. You know, I was uh, recently got an update from these guys, the Ata guys, and, and it's, they're still out there, like they're still working. Geico's still standing with a group of them, and they're still traveling, they're still planning churches, consulting with church planners, they're still doing work, and unless I said something this morning, you don't know who they are, and you know what, it doesn't actually matter, because they are faithfully living lives of integrity before the Lord. And so you can pray for them. I'm serious. You can pray for them because the last, what we want for them is just to persist until the end. Um, you pray for one another. Like point one another towards this kind of ambition. That This is our aspiration. Like I said, it levels the playing field of life for us. So I just challenge you to be thinking of life before God in those kinds of terms. That, that, that's really who we are as Christians, when we say Christ followers, that's who we are. So I'm going to throw a, a revi- revised version of your discussion questions up here. Um, and they're, they're, they're pretty similar, but there's a few differences. Um, and just encourage you to, to think about these a bit for the next few minutes as, as we get ready to turn toward our services. Um, I don't need to read them because you guys are good readers, you know. So you can look up there and read it's amazing um, so I'm going to pray though, and then i'll let you let us talk about this for a bit okay father um, I'm very grateful to you for your salvation of my life and uh, Lord I confess I confess this morning that many times that I don't live with a, a desire to truly pursue your face in the recesses of my heart in the in the inner conversations, in the, in the integrity of life and decision for today. And so I pray that we will, that you will continue to challenge us. Thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the gospel, in his death, burial, resurrection, that you have pursued us. And I do pray that each person has accepted that offer that Christ has made of eternal life. If someone has not, I pray that they will, that they'll turn in faith and repentance to Christ for salvation. But in the meantime, I pray that we will indeed then pursue you, pursue your person, your presence, your purposes, such that we can live in the assurance of salvation. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.